Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome viewers and listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Allison Gustafson. She is with the physical therapy program in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Today, we're going to talk about an article she and her colleagues recently published in PTJ. The title is Application of High-Intensity Functional Resistance Training in a Skilled Nursing Facility, an Implementation Study. Let me start by saying I really enjoyed your article, and it's nice to see more implementation research being done in our field, and this I thought was a really nice example. I'll give a little summary of your study for our listeners and viewers, and then we can talk about it. Sounds good. The purpose of the study was to evaluate safety, feasibility, and some preliminary information on effectiveness of a high-intensity functional resistance training intervention in patients in a, a skilled nursing facility, or SNF. The study design consisted of two non-randomized independent groups, usual care and high-intensity, within a single SNF institution. The intervention, called iStronger, which I really liked. I thought that was a nice acronym. It integrates principles of physiologic tissue overload into the uh, rehabilitation intervention. Findings from the study suggest that implementation is safe, it's feasible, and the data support a signal of effectiveness in improving function as well as uh, satisfaction. Although the authors acknowledge the heterogeneity of the population suggest the need for a larger future study. So Dr. Gustafson, let's start. In the introduction to the article, you talk about a discrepancy between the high cost and rather poor functional outcomes for older adults who are in SNF institutions. And you argue it highlights the need for changes in the rehabilitation care that we're providing for these kinds of patients. This was of great interest to me because I, I started my career working in a skilled nursing facility running a rehab uh, department. Why do you think the problem is the rehabilitation care and what exactly do you think is the problem? Yeah, so this uh, data that I had talked about in the introduction had come from CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And I think this is largely attributable to the variation in clinical practice. So again, this is nationwide data. And uh, traditionally, part of the challenge to advancing SNF rehabilitation has been the lack of incentive for high quality care, not that therapists weren't providing it, but I think what happens is providers are potentially face this dilemma where they're having to prioritize reimbursement driven over evidence-based practices. And then there hasn't been this infrastructure and support to, to maybe change their approach to practice. And I think post-acute care reform is, is shifting this perspective and incentivizing um, providers and then also the administrators to deliver the high quality evidence-based care that produces these optimal outcomes in less time and, and then reflects the appropriate payment for care. 
what I liked about your intervention was it was theoretically derived. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the principles that you used in building the intervention? Yeah, and I think you're, you're kind of talking about the underlying clinical intervention was really these principles of muscle overload and the need to produce a stronger and different stimulus to maximize the, the physiologic effects. And those are like the strength and the motor control for optimal translation to function. I think that's what you're talking about. I mean, there was also the implementation theory. No, um, I'm talking about the intervention. Yeah. Yeah, so that was kind of the basis, and we've known for a long time that Fiaterone's papers in the 90s did high intensity with these older adults in nursing homes, and it's it's always been there. And then, so the purpose of this study was to, to really translate that into a, the context of the SNF setting. You point out that physiologic adaptation of the muscle in, in terms of hypertrophy takes six to eight weeks. In, in a high intensity program, such as what you implemented, but your, your follow-up was much shorter, about uh, a month. But you note that there would be neuromuscular changes that could improve function. Did you see uh, evidence of neuromuscular changes in contrast to hypertrophy when you looked at your subjects? You know, unable to assess at a physiologic level, the force production velocity, but I would say we observed the neuromuscular changes by the, the demonstration of a better performance on the SPVB and gait speed. Both are functional tasks that require power, require large muscle recruitment and coordination. So that's kind of how we were indirectly um, looking at that. And um, I guess an analogy I, I often think about is... Um, when I was in acute care, there's, you often see these patients who literally walked into the ER and 24 hours later cannot seem to move anymore. And I think that's a lot um, of the neuromuscular changes that are occurring. So then if, if rehab, if we can provide an intensity that helps kind of wake that system up, um, that's where we can see some of these effects early on in the post-acute phase, um, instead of having to wait the six to eight weeks to, to see it translate to function. It was interesting to me that you used SPPB. And as you've just noted, you saw improvement in gait. And so I understand your inference from that. Uh, did you look at the other two components of SPPB in isolation? I believe there's a balance component and then there's a chair rise component. Yeah, there's a balance those? component. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just asking if you looked at those. Yeah, so the reason we had extracted gate speed out was because we had originally a priori decided that was going to be a secondary outcome. Um, in, in the end, we did look at those balance and um, the five times sit to stand just to kind of exploratory nature to inform future efforts and then also kind of what measures best capture responsiveness to this type of approach. And we, we didn't really see any differences. And I think this is a largely due to the categorical jumps with the SPBB um, in terms of the zero to four categories. And then we also heard from therapists that many patients you know, were still unable to complete the five times sit to stand one. So then they scored a zero, but but they were maybe able to do a couple of sit to stands at discharge. And, and to them, that was meaningful improvement. It just wasn't captured with this measure. Um, so yeah, we're still, we're still trying to figure out kind of what is the best measure to, to capture in this population. 
it struck me because um, some years ago I did a study, a trial in uh, hip fracture, and we saw a very similar pattern of change in recovery. We saw good change in gait speed, but we did not see overall change in SPPB, and we didn't see change in those two other components, which leads me to suggest that SPPB may not be the best um, metric for looking at the kinds of changes you're trying to achieve in these patients. Yes, and originally we had selected it because it allowed us to uh, capture people who were maybe requiring significant assist at baseline for ambulation or who were uh, you know, potentially even non-ambulatory, but were projected to be ambulatory by discharge. Um, so that, that was the one thing that we had struggled with, with like those people that were gate speed or the tug would not be appropriate measures because they would require assist for them. Um, and then we wouldn't have a value to compare to at um, discharge. So that's what our thought process was in including the SPVB. Yeah, I, I get it. Let's talk a little bit about your design. I. I understand the challenge in doing an implementation study to use a quasi-experimental design. Um, and you use two independent patient groups. They were not randomized and they were from within the same skilled nursing facility, if I read that correctly. Yes. Was there concern over contamination across the two groups? Uh, given the design that you used, did you look at it and was that a, a, a problem? So the way we did it was we staged it. So there's like the usual care group happened first um, and they were just, and then we had the training. And then after that, all of the preceding patients that were appropriate were treated as a stronger as the, the standard of care. So there wasn't, it wasn't happening um, concurrently. So that kind of helped with our contamination. I think there's always um, a potential for that because we weren't changing care delivery and we tried to be very upfront with the therapist. Like don't, don't change what you're doing because we were having the therapist administer, administer these standardized tests. So there's always this risk that um, they were changing, you know, by us kind of monitoring that and having interaction with them that they were changing their practice. Um, but, you know, there was with a, a small pilot study, we, you know, randomizing patients at the level in, in the SNF, it really isn't feasible given the, um, the fact that therapists often rotate patients uh, daily to accommodate scheduling and, yeah. and patient needs. And, you know, we didn't have enough of a um, sample to, to kind of randomize at the SNF level, that's kind of our next level is um, to do like usual care and I stronger trained facilities, but you really need a large sample size um, considering the variability in um, settings in terms of their size, their for-profit status, their geographical location. So um, like I said, that's, that's kind of where we're, we're headed to. So um, yeah, we were just trying to be very clear with the therapist that um, we, we just wanted to see what they normally do. And then we were going to provide some, some training and support to do something different. And, you know, we're not saying that what they were doing before was bad. So we didn't really want to have them change it. Um, we were just gonna, we approached it as they were going to, to do something different with, with care after their, their training. And how comparable were the patient groups? 
in terms of their characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. So they were um, fairly comparable. I think their their diagnoses slightly shifted, if I remembered correctly, but otherwise they were um, comparable in other in other factors. Let's talk a little bit about your um, documentation. I know mm -hmm. it was a challenge. You were looking for documentation of treatment progression and uh, you saw variability across disciplines and across the, the intervention groups. Have you thought about how to improve that in future work of this nature? Yes, and I think integration into the EMR templates is really the key. Um, so for embedding that, that documentation of intensity and progression, for this study, we had the therapist documenting on paper for the research purposes, and then they still needed to document in the electronic medical record for justification of skilled services and billing. So I think what tended to happen was they would prioritize that since that was where the billing was coming from. And um, if they had time to see it, they did mention, they thought there was value and that it made them more efficient in that the next day they could see like, oh, this is how I was going to progress and, and stuff like that. But I think again, like it needed to be embedded into their more of their routine uh, flow. And, and that's where for the next phase, we're really um, working with companies to like to get it into the EMR template. So it's just a part of what what they're doing during the patient session um, and a lot easier. It would certainly be helpful in documenting your treatment fidelity in future work. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we, we relied a lot on the um, observations, yeah. but again, when somebody's observing you, you can change the way you're, you're doing something and we wanted to capture what was going on outside of that. And, you know, we still saw the effects, so they were still doing it. And it, so that's where we were just, we're, we're still grappling with how to best um, measure, use the documentation as that, as that measure of fidelity. Yeah. The, the other design uh, challenge that I was thinking of in reading your, your study was you saw a shortened length of stay, which is nice. I mean, it was three and a half days. So that's a positive um, outcome. And one would like to think it's related to the, to the rehab. Obviously, we don't know. But it does raise challenges. When did you do your gate speed outcome assessment? Was it at the point of discharge or was it time-based? It was at the point of discharge. Yeah. And so th that meant on average, the um, intensity, the high intensity intervention group was getting the outcome assessment earlier than the others. Ha did you consider using it uh, time-based regardless of when they were discharged and just follow them up wherever they were? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And we had not considered that um, again, because we were trying to capture the, the variability and some people are there for a short time and some are there for a longer, but that's, that's something interesting we could consider um, because yes, we were, we weren't intending for them to discharge earlier. Um, that was, you know, either happened, we hope it was attributed as, as sure. somewhat sure. to the rehab, but um, it, was, it was an interesting, it wasn't something we had planned or intended outcomes, so. 
you know, if you had the resources, you could continue the intervention regardless of discharge status. Mm -hmm. And then see if, if you did the follow-up assessment at the same time, you might get a, um, a better assessment of overall impact on things like function. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, Dr. Gustafson, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about your study. I really enjoyed it. It's a really important area of investigation and a very challenging area, as uh, you and your colleagues know better, better than I. And I really look forward to seeing your future work as you move forward in doing this kind of work. Well, thank you. Yes, it's always um, a challenge, but I, I think this is also an area that the research is really needed and you know, therapists are looking for the support um, to, to change how they're doing it within the context of these challenging environments that they work in. So I'm, I'm excited to keep moving forward and, and see what happens and how we can change post-acute care. Thank you. Thank you.